What I'd like to discuss, you know, we've, we've tried to use this, um, these occasions in which we meet to discuss the fundamentals of Torah and Judaism, and uh, perhaps one day we'll merit to study together some of the applications, more the applications of these principles, but right now we're going through the phase where we are trying together to study the basic principles themselves. And one of the basics is a question that's perhaps uh, among the most basic of ideas and issues in Torah. And it's a question that's coming up in the weekly Pasha in a week or so. And that is a question concerning this world and the next. The nature of the next world. <coughs> the world to come, what we call Alam Abba, the world after this. I'd like to try to deal with a specific question one of the classic questions in all of Torah literature, all of Torah, Torah commentary, one of the most classic questions, and try to use this question to understand, to answer, of course, the question, and to learn the deep or deepest elements that we can in a form such as this about the question of <clears throat> the process of movement from this world to the next and what it means. Let me start with the, with the question itself, and then we'll try and backtrack in an attempt to answer the question. To do it thoroughly will probably take us a series of discussions, and that's with your permission what I'd like to do. We'll begin it now, and Mitzvah Shem will be able to continue in a couple of weeks' time. <coughs> to do it thoroughly will only take us a couple of years, and... Uh, <coughs> But let's at least try and spend a few, <coughs> few occasions. I'll do my best to make the discussion self-contained for those who can't follow the whole sequence of the discussions. But, <coughs> of course, you'll benefit most if you're able to, to hear it through. Let's begin with the question itself, and then we will try to backtrack as far as necessary. <coughs> the question is this. <coughs> well, no better place to start than the, than the source itself. The Pasha says, the Chumash says like this, in the Pasha B'chukhoisai, the words are as follows. Stay with me and see if you can feel out for yourself the difficulty. All of Torah really boils down to one's own, to your own ability to learn it. <coughs> this is not dry material that, that, that lives in a, in a text. It's not the idea of Torah. Torah lives in the hearts and minds of the Jewish people. And therefore, <coughs> the real meaning of Torah <coughs> is your understanding of it. So think with me and see if you can feel out the problem. Let me translate for you <coughs> the central statement that relates to this issue <coughs> in the Torah text itself. <coughs> see if you can feel out the difficulty. <coughs> Long before we get to beginning to answer the question, we'll have to understand the question itself as deeply as possible. The passage says like this. If you walk in my ways, my statutes, and you observe, you keep my mitzvahs, and you do them. I'm not going to translate every word, word for word literally. You can look it up yourself, and you certainly should. This is a classic and fantastic opportunity to learn how to handle text. And I urge you to, to prepare yourself. We're going to go through a few discussions on this subject. You will gain immeasurably more if you have studied the, the text itself. If your Hebrew is weak, <clears throat> this institution is geared to providing you with the kind of help that you need. There are plenty of translations available. You can make a lot of progress, whatever your level. 
But what the, part, what the Sukkim says is this. If you keep my statutes and you observe my mitzvahs, the difference between statutes and mitzvahs, <coughs> I'm not going to go into now, <coughs> and you perform them. <coughs> In other words, <coughs> if you keep your end of the deal, <coughs> Torah is obligation. Torah is a list, basically, of our obligations. In fact, it contains not only our obligations, but all of humanity's obligations, certain sections of Torah that speak to non-Jews certain sections of Torah that speak to Jews. This is the book of human obligation. In fact, we have a deep tradition that all of Torah is obligation. Every word is obligation. It's not a... a there's no historical or, or, or... There's no parts to Torah other than obligation. That has to be understood from the outset. <clears throat> in fact, it goes so far. I mean, there's wonderful examples of this. The statement in the Pasuk that says, over. Just to give you an example of how far it goes. We say it on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. Our days are like a passing shadow. That's a beautiful poetic expression that, that, that expresses the uh, <coughs> ephemeral nature of, of life and its shortness. Our days are like a passing shadow. What's the question that the sages ask on this statement? It's a remarkable approach. Just the, to ask this question is remarkable. And shows so, it says so much. The, statement they, that they, the question that's raised on that verse is, what obligation is inherent in that verse? Again, you always apply the basic principles. Right? Let's backtrack as, as far as possible. The, most, the, deepest, the deepest principle, the deepest fundamental in learning Torah is that you always go back to the point of origin. Right? That's the fundamental. You never tack a thing at face value where it stands. To understand it thoroughly, you always go back to the point of origin. In physics, right? you're trying to understand the underlying cause. And if that cause has an underlying cause, you want to understand that. Otherwise, you haven't understood the subject thoroughly. In medicine, when you study something in the body, if you know your job, then you go back to the embryology of that part of the body. If you didn't understand how it comes to be in its stage of formation, you haven't understood it thoroughly. If you understand the embryology thoroughly, you'll go back to the genetics. But you must go back to the fundamentals in order to study anything that there is. <coughs> We always do that. We always apply the first real wisdom does not mean knowing detail. Real wisdom means knowing how the underlying principles are always manifest in all the details. A great scientist or a great physician, a, a, a person of great wisdom in any field is not a person who knows detail. It's a person who knows how the details are all explained by the underlying principle. So we're always looking to, ex to, to express or to see the expression of the underlying principle. The derivation of this principle, of course, is... What's the underlying principle in Judaism that makes this necessary? And we've learned enough together for you to know. Don't break my heart. Achdus <laughs> Hashem, right? The oneness of Hashem. Since the whole world has a point of origin that is truly one, so it follows that everything's an output or outcome of that oneness. And therefore all wisdom patterns itself on the same process. That all details in any field are explained by the oneness of the underlying principle <coughs> that generates those causes, those effects. The cause that generates those effects. If the basic principle of Torah is that it's all obligation, then the sharp eye of the sages, when they read the sentence, the statement in the Torah that our days are like a flitting shadow, the first thing they want to know is what obligation is that? It's a poetic statement, a metaphorical statement. Your days flash by like a shadow that flits. No, that's not good enough. What's the obligation? And they learn there's an obligation. And it should be pretty obvious if you're thinking on the right wavelength. What's the obligation inherent in the statement that your days pass like shadows? Make every day count. There's a Torah obligation to make sure that every day is much more, of course. There's a deep discussion here in the deeper, in the deeper wisdom of what a day is. Torah tells you that every day must count. It doesn't speak about weeks or months or years or hours or minutes. It says that every day must count. That's a whole 
mystical discussion about why the unit of the passage of time is a day, but that's another whole that's another whole subject. But the point is that it says that even in the statement that seems the most poetic and least technical, we search for the obligation. The Torah's obligation. So now, with that background in mind, listen to what the verse says. If you fulfill your obligations, all of them, those that category that's called chukim, that category that's called mitzvahs, <coughs> you do them. <coughs> if you do them, im, if you do them, what must the next statement be? The consequence, what will happen? The pay, the payout, the reward. Right? This is where it says it. This is where the Torah is telling you what you will get if you live correctly. If you fulfill your end of the deal, this is a contract that we, ended at, that we entered at Sinai, <coughs> that point that we're moving towards through these weeks. When the Torah was given, we bought into this obligation, we as a nation, <coughs> as a corporation, that's why you are still obliged. Our corporation, the Jewish people, entered into this, into this uh, bond, into this contract, and the contract obliges us. All of it obliges us. And it says that if you fulfill your end of the deal and you live up to your obligations, then what we're going to hear now is the, the reward, the payout. What is the payout? Well, it's lengthy. I will give rain in its season. Your rain's in their season. And the, the earth will give its fullness. And the trees of the field will give their fruits. And, and the threshing, the, uh, the, the seed will give uh, crops. And the crop will give more seed. And you'll eat your bread to the full. And you'll sit in security in your land, in Israel. Then I started Shalom Bites, and I'll give you a peace in the land. There'll be peace in the land. And you'll lie down at night without any fear. And I'll destroy, there'll be no complete removal of all wild forces, wild animals. And a sword shall not pass, by the way, some of the commentaries say... What, what do you mean a sword shall... No weapons will pass through the land. There'll be no weapons passing through Israel. He already said there'll be peace. The commentaries say not even a peace, not even peaceful weapons. Not even armed people going anyplace else, let alone any wars there. Not even a, a, a memory of war. And the pre-Messianic age will be an acceleration of wars. Meaningless and, and, and indescribable brutality. A nation against nation, in case you haven't noticed but, but in the end, there'll be a situation where there's not even a, a, not even a, a, a hint of that. And there'll be no, the enemies of the Jewish people will be entirely destroyed in, a, in, a, in an, an exceptional fashion. And I'll turn to you. This Kabbalistically means that Hashem's face will be revealed as opposed to a, another aspect of His presence. All very deep meanings here. And you'll multiply. And I'll establish my covenant with you. And it goes on to say that the temple will be built. You'll eat old. You'll eat the best quality of, of, of produce. And my sanctuary will be among you. I shall not despise you in any way. And I'll walk among you. I'll walk among you. And I'll be your God. And you'll be my nation. Now, this raises a problem. Does it raise a problem? Rashi here goes into it. You should look it up yourself. And the commentaries all talk about it. The problem is this. And I'm sure your minds are racing ahead of me. And you've picked it up already. The problem is that the Torah clearly indicates here the reward that the Jewish people will experience if they are living up to their, if we live up to our obligations. And you notice that it does not mention the next world. It does not mention the next world. Here the Torah stipulates the reward. This is the part of the contract that talks about salary. It says quite clearly, if you keep my mitzvahs, the consequence will be, and then it launches into a lengthy description of physical bounty. In this world, rain in its season, animals healthy, crops, food, no fear, no terrorist activity, not even any fear of it, etc., etc., etc. What about the next world? What about the next world? What about the world after this? What about after you die? 
or after we all leave this place, even after the resurrection and the final stage happens, what we call the world to come, we'll try and lay out more clearly what are these stages. But we have a concept of the world to come. Judaism rests on that. Every Jew, presumably, I hope, any, any Jew who knows that he's Jewish, any Jew who knows there's such a thing called Judaism, surely, knows that we move towards, we focus on a world after this. I'm trying to show you logically why it must be so. No, no spiritual system begins to make any sense. No transient, ephemeral existence here makes any sense unless it moves towards something of essence. All process is justified by its end point. There's so many ways to look at it. The, surely the reward that the Torah speaks about, that we all know of, that's written in all the sources in the oral law in so much detail, is the world to come. But here in the contract itself, this is the Torah. The written Torah itself, which by definition contains everything, does not mention the world to come. And not only that, it doesn't mention it anywhere. It's not just here. Here's where you look for it, obviously, because here we read you know, the conditions. If you fulfill your end of the, of the, of the contract, this is what will happen. So here we look with, with great anticipation, great intensity, we search for a mention of an eternal, cosmic, transcendent reward. doesn't speak about it. And if you search the, test, the text of the Tanakh, of all the written Torahs, certainly the Chumash, but even if you include the, <coughs> all the books of what they call the, what we call Tanakh, right? The 24 books of the written, what in English they call the canon. Scripture. The written law. If you, if you, if you examine all of the written law, you'll not find any reference to the world to come. Even those things that may appear to be references to the world to come, incredible descriptions of, of what will be, and there a massive amount of detail, the sources that say we'll all be vegetarian, even animals, even, even, even carnivorous animals will be vegetarian, they eat straw, how the natural world will dispose itself, animals that once at each other will... There the Maharal says clearly, and he lays down a clear and straightforward principle, all that he's speaking only about the Messianic Age. The Messianic Age is not the world to come. The Messianic Age is something that's just around the corner. It's in the next few years. We only have 241 years left before it must manifest, according to the... That's a Messianic Age. Why do the prophets not speak about anything beyond the Messianic Age, which is definitely a finite and earthbound stage? Because the moral says, No eye can see that except yours. A prophet cannot speak about it. It's beyond prophecy. Prophecy is trans- transcendent and cosmic, and, but it's not, no eye can see that. Not even the prophetic eye can see that, and therefore the Torah doesn't speak about it. Not even the prophetic writings. So in summary, we're faced with an immense problem. The Torah does not mention the world to come. And yet it's our deep belief that that's the reward. But the Torah doesn't say it. Now, what's going on? Where, first of all, where does the oral law get it from? Where does the oral tradition get it from? But much more worrying. We'll find where the oral law gets it. There's wonderful descriptions in the oral. That oral tradition derives the concept of the world to come, and it brings it out of the verses in ways that are typical of the oral law. For example, the Gemara says, um, many examples, many, many examples. The Gemara says, for example, it says, um, Hashem says to Moshe Rabbein, to Moses, you will lie with your forefathers, you'll die. You will lie together with your forefathers. And this nation shall arise and go astray. That's a prediction that Moshe Rabbein was given. Says the Talmud. There's another way to read that verse. Why? Because you can punctuate the verse in Chumash any which way you like if it fits the rules of Hebrew punctuation. Now, there's no punctuation given in the text, and therefore, it's one way that you can have coded into the same text more than one set, much more than one set of information, because you can punctuate differentially, and from the same text, you can extract overlapping and overlaying messages. 
It's one mechanism by which a finite text can contain an almost endless or an endless amount of information. So instead of translating or punctuating the verse that way, you can punctuate it like this. You will lie with your forefathers and arise. An indication of the resurrection, the movement towards the world that comes after this, at least that. And the Talmud brings other derivations, some of them very beautiful. One of them, the Talmud Gemara says in Sanhedrin, says that you can, again, this will require a lot more discussion, but based on the principle that everything about the higher world has its reflection or image in this world, that's an axiom I believe we've studied together before. In fact, the axiom is so deep that everything in this world is nothing other than a reflection of something higher. Therefore, when you look at things in this world, there are many wonderful examples of this, you see that there's a transition from this to something that is its opposite. You see it inherent in this world. The way that the, way the Gemara puts it is, <coughs> there's a certain creature, it's a beautiful illustration, the Gemara says there's a certain creature, whatever that creature is, we would call it a, a, a caterpillar, we would call it a, a worm or a caterpillar, something like that. The Gemara says that it dies, and the way it dies is, it spins a cocoon, and then it enters the cocoon, and it, it um, disintegrates. It becomes a gelatinous, mucinous material inside the cocoon. Right? And then what happens is, it opens and emerges a butterfly. Which means, understand this, that the Gemara is saying to you that there's a hint in the biological world of the process of the transition from this world to the next. It's a hint. Why? Because you see here a creature that conducts its life cycle by being that which is lowly, but proverbially lowly. That means it is, it, it's a sluggish in the literal sense. It's earthbound, it's blind, it's slow, it's colorless, it's drab. It's, the, it's, 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 the, it's almost the, proverbially the lowest and, and, and least ethereal entity that you could hope to find in the biological world. And what happens is, when, when, when it lives its life, life cycle out, it becomes even more that way. Not only is it sluggish and, 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 and lowly, but when it dies, it literally disintegrates and becomes nothing other than a gel. And then what happens is that a cocoon opens and flies out a butterfly. You couldn't conceive of anything biological more opposite than a worm that it was before than a butterfly. Diaphanous, colorful creature that floats almost weightless. If, you, if, you're not, if that doesn't move you, there's no hope for you. There's no hope for you. If you don't hear a hint, if you don't have the sensitivity to see in the, in the biological world, a creature that is so lowly that must go through its life cycle by transitioning into its very opposite. If you think that's an accident after a few million years of bumping into each other, these worms solve their problem of procreation by going through yeah, being a worm now and a butterfly which lays eggs and becomes worms, you think that's accident. <laughs> you, you, you don't belong here, that's for sure. Yeah. You have such a beautiful and such a clear hint, the problem of procreation of a worm as a biological engineering problem, can be solved in a far simpler fashion than having it go through its exact opposite in the... You can see there, the Gemara says, just a very subtle hint to this kind of transition. The Rambam has even more dramatic illustration. The Rambam has a... Has a, a these are not proofs. These are not proofs at all. These are not proofs. It's missing from the Torah. Let's not make any mistake. I'm just showing you, just trying to show you that it's not proofs that there's a world after this. Not at all. But for a person who wants to find the clues, wishes to find the clues, somebody who doesn't want to find them will not find them. Somebody who wishes to find the clues, there's plenty to base it on. I'll share with you one more example. It's written that a group of 
neo-Greek philosophers. They once accosted the Rambam. This is 800 years ago, 900 years ago. They once accosted him with the following challenge. They said to him, You Jews are evil. You Jews are evil because you teach that death leads to life. That's what your Jewish teaching is. You teach that there's a world after this. You teach that the dead disintegrate in the ground and then sprouts forth from them a new life. Right? The resurrection, the world after this, the whole, that whole concept. That's what you teach. But we see that life leads to death. When we objectively examine the world, we see that everything that's alive dies. Everything that's alive, virtually everything gets worse with time, except wine. Virtually everything gets worse, worse with time, and everything that's alive dies. And you say that that which dies becomes alive. But we don't see it. You're evil to teach a doctrine that has no basis in fact or observable phenomena. And not only that, but you Jews teach, as we said here this evening, that everything that's true spiritually is reflected in the physical world. So you're contradicting yourselves. That's a, that's a sophisticated question, that you have to understand. That, that we don't record in our rabbinic literature the questions of fools. It's a sophisticated question. You Jews teach that you have to look no further than the physical world to see the evidence of a higher world. That's what you teach. But when we look at the physical world and do what you tell us to, we see that life leads to death. And you turn around and say that from the physical world you can learn the higher principles and that life, death leads to life? That's a perverted and evil thing that you're foisting on the intellect of mankind that is completely unfounded in fact. That fact itself speaks the opposite. Sophisticated question. The Rambam answered like this. Stay carefully with me, please. The Rambam answered like this. It's the beauty of this answer. This is, this is how to, if you're a, this is how to answer a question. The Rambam said, imagine an individual born on a desert island. A, 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 a person born in the jungle. Like in a wilderness where he meets no other human being. As a baby. And he grows up alone, never having any other contact with a human being. Imagine, it's a hypothetical exercise. A person grows up and comes to adult consciousness and stumbles upon a group of human beings for the first time in his life. Let's forget about the problems of communication and all the, the nonsense. That's not, this is a hypothetical situation to put across a point. He meets this group of human beings and he's fascinated and he wants to know, when he communicates with them, he wants to know about his origin. His origin, how did, he, how did I begin? He's, he doesn't have a consciousness that goes beyond when he was very young. How did I come into being? So they say to him, like this, listen carefully. The way you came into being was, you began inside the body of another human being. That's how you began life. You began your life within the body of another. You lived inside a woman's body. You lived underwater. You lived under, immersed in liquid, inside a woman's body with no air to breathe. And your whole body looked opposite to what it does now. You know, the Gemara says that the fetus inside the mother's womb has all the physiological factors that an adult has reversed. The way the Gemara puts it is that everything, when a child's born, everything that what's opened, what's open closes, and what's closed opens. That's what the Gemara says. Of course, in modern medicine, we know exactly what it means. <laughs> is that when a child is inside the womb, its anatomy has certain characteristics. When it's born... But those characteristics are the opposite of an adult in the world. For example, without going into a lot of detail, the child in the womb has a holes in its heart. The blood flow yeah, does not flow the way it does in an adult. The, blood, yeah, the communication between the halves of the heart that are not found in an adult. Not only that, but the blood flow is completely opposite. And what happens is the blood that exits from the heart in a normal, in a, in a person, in, in, in people alive in the world, is that, a, is that the, the entire blood volume 
that is ejected from the heart goes through the lungs. There's a very big blood vessel that carries the blood from the heart to the lungs for oxygenation, comes back to the heart, and then gets circulated to the body. A baby doesn't have that. A fetus does not have that. An unborn fetus does not have that blood vessel. It has a thin tract that is the suggestion of such a thing, but it's completely clamped down and closed, a thin cord. There's no blood flow through it. Not only that, but the lungs are crunched up, scrunched piece, like, a, like a squeezed sponge. There's no blood flow through them because there's no blood supplying them with blood. Not only that, but the whole thing's reversed. The, 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 the child has ble- uh, blood vessels exiting through his liver and out of his umbilicus. And he pumps an enormous volume of blood through the umbilicus to the placenta, and it, re- and it has a reverse flow through the liver. You don't have those blood vessels. And it goes on and on. He has a complete... But, but let's go further. He doesn't just have a physiology and anatomy that's different than an adult. It's the opposite. How opposite? That every feature that he has while he's unborn is a life-giving feature. But think further. Each of those life-giving features, if you had when you were here, would kill you. It's not just different, it's death. There it's essential to keep him alive. If one of those holes would close, he would die. If one of those closed things would open, he would die. Each of those things that he has, he needs to survive. But any of those would kill you. If we did any of those things, we put you underwater without any air to breathe. You'd die instantly. If we opened that vessel or closed that one, you would die instantly. They're life-essential elements that the baby has, and they would kill you here. And conversely, when you have them here, they're essential for life, but they would kill him. If we close down that blood vessel in you that takes blood to the lungs, you die instantly. We scrunched up your lungs, you die instantly. And vice, in other words, you have a child living in a, an anatomical dispensation that is completely opposite in a life and death sense. It's not just different or physically different. It's different in the most intense fashion possible. It's life and death difference that in every single feature that he has. Now, this is the description they're giving to this individual who grew up in a in a wilderness situation. You lived in that situation, but you were perfectly fine. You were fine there because you lived underwater and you didn't need air, but you had the blood supplied from your mother's body and so forth, the whole description. Then came the time for birth. What happened? This might sound strange, you say, they say to you. It might sound strange, but there came a moment where you're thrust out into that world, and of course that's a problem because you're being thrust out into a world <coughs> that is the opposite You were thrust out into a world that is the opposite of where you live now. A world where every feature that you possess will kill you instantly in that world. Because you're going to be sent out into a world with no more oxygen and blood coming from your mother and no ability to breathe it either. Every feature you have is going to be a cause. Each, each single feature will be a cause of your immediate death in that world. And in fact, I can tell you, yeah, you don't need to be a doctor, but I can tell you from my personal experience, that when you witness that thing, when, you st- when you're present at a birth and you hold that little baby in your hands, you see it. That's exactly what happens. The first few seconds that you hold the child in your hands, the child begins to die. Because what happens is he's got everything wrong. Not one or two things. Every feature of his anatomy is guaranteed will be killing him within seconds. Minutes. child can end up a very few minutes without oxygenation. A few minutes more than you can, but very few minutes. And you hold the child in your hands, he begins to die. He goes a deep purple. He starts bleeding to death. You know, a newborn child is pumping out his blood volume through the umbilical vessels at an alarming rate. If you hold the umbilical cord in your hands as the child is born, you feel the pulsation of the blood being poured out to a certain death. You know what the newborn child's blood volume is? (coughs) It's just less than a big coffee cup full of blood. That's all. That's all he has. And he's pumping it out at a furious rate. Within seconds, he will exsanguinate and die. And as you watch this inevitable death under your own hands... What happens is suddenly, within seconds, all these things reverse. What happens is as you hold the umbilical, because remarkable things, you try it sometime. 
You hold this. circumstances. You hold this cord in your hands, this pulsating umbilical cord in your hands, and as you hold it and feel that blood coursing through it to destruction, it clamps down with an iron, with a vice-like grip. The umbilical cord clamps down into a cord of steel and stops its bleeding. At exactly the same moment, the, 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 this little invisible area between the heart and the lungs suddenly opens up and becomes a massive and major blood vessel. You can actually hear it. With your, with your steth- you put your stethoscope on the chest of this child, you hear it. At the same moment that that bl- blood vessel opens up, the blood hits the lungs. At exactly that moment, the lungs expand. At the same moment, he takes his first breath so that the first air that enters the lungs meets the first blood rushing through the lungs. And within three and a half minutes, it's all reversed and he's doing fine. That must have taken a good few million years of bumping into each other in the trees. <laughs> And what happens? You have a child now alive in the world with all the features exactly opposite of what they were and perfect for where they are now. That's predictable. You tell this individual, you say to him, that's how you were born. He would back off, you know, cautiously, you know, keeping you in full view. (laughs) If you said that, because that's absolutely preposterous. Complete. He would say to you, you're being ridiculous. You're being ridiculous. There's no simpler way to get me here. There's no simpler way to get me here. That's how biology devised yet to get me here. And where's the evidence? Excuse me, where's the evidence? You look at my body, I don't see any of this. You don't see any of this. You have to look very carefully. You want to see the remnants of the blood vessels that once coursed through your liver with all your blood, vessel, blood volume? It's a faint echo of a trap, that's all. A few dimples here and there to remind you, that's all. And he would say that you're being ridiculous and he'd be wrong. Because that's how it happens. He would be incapable of relating to it. And you'd, he'd be excused for doing so. But he'd be wrong. And the Gemara says, the Ramam said to them, and therefore you're not looking closely enough at the world. Look at the process of birth and you'll understand the process of death. You're looking in the wrong places. Our axiom remains true. The physical world has the evidence of its own spiritual essence and its spiritual course and, and, and eventual, eventual development. And what better place, what more logical place to look at the miracle of a transition from this world to the next, but in that place that is the transition from the previous to this, where else do you expect to look? Surely if Hashem's going to put a clue into the world that a transition from this world to the next that looks like death and destruction, in fact from the other side is, will be perceived to be a, re- a reversal that is real life, He's going to put it into the transition that you went through getting from there here. And of course the deeper sources, the Kabbalistic sources say that the transition of opposites that you went through getting from there here is nothing compared, nothing compared to the transition of opposites that you'll go through from here to there. It's only the faintest beginning of a suggestion of an echo of a hint. <laughs> but it's enough. If you're sensitive to hints, it's enough. And there are many other descriptions and many other sources for the sensitive eye and sensitive ear to hear that this world has richly imbued with the evidence of its own spiritual source, point of origin, point of destiny and destination. But the problem that we're dealing with now is doesn't say it in the book. It does not say it. It does not say so. And the Torah says everything. The Torah, by definition, is the cause of reality. The Torah is the blueprint. The Torah, we've said so many times. The Torah is the film through which the light gets shone. And what projects itself on the screen is nothing other than what's on the film. Nothing can arrive on the screen unless it's present in the film. It cannot be. The Torah is the projection of Hashem's light onto the film, the fabric of reality, of the world. If it's not in the Torah, it cannot appear in the world. So if the Torah is everything, how does it leave out the world to come? 
Furthermore, are, you beginning, are we beginning to feel the problem? We're not going to enjoy the answer unless we hear the problem. <laughs> furthermore, 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 not only is the Torah leave it out, which is impossible, because the Torah is the cause of reality, but it's, what kind of contract is this? What sort of contract is this? I'm being employed here. I'm being given a list of obligations from beginning to end. And it has a clause. It has a clause which, which details my reward. And the essence of my reward is that transition into an utterly opposite situation. Then. And it doesn't say it. How would you feel if you were employed by an employer? And he gave you a, this is a very detailed, this is only by Yikra, it's one of five. And it's obligation in every word. And in fact, there are 24 books of the written law. This is only one of the five of the Chumashim. It's a long and very detailed contract. It's a very, very detailed contract. And every word of it is an obligation. And then you get to the clause that says reward, and it's utterly omitted? What kind of contract is that? And you're obliging yourself into this thing? And then you say, well, where's the salary? And they say, well, you know, read carefully between the lines. <laughs> and you say, but, you know, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but is it going to be enforceable in a court of law? You know, is it there in the fine print? But it's not in the fine print, but you know, go look at the worms and the butterflies. <laughs> look at a child as he's born, you know, and you say, well, you know, I'm very grateful for those. And I, you know, but I, you, could you just maybe mention it in the contract? It's missing. What's going on? What is going on? Surely there's a fundamental problem. Now, Rashi, who deals with this problem, indicates that the problem's even worse than that. And the reason the problem is worse, and I understand more deeply now, is because the Torah does talk about reward. The Torah does talk about reward, right here. But it only talks about physical reward. If the Torah never mentioned reward at all, you could say for some reason it's not discussed. There's a massive reward. It's not discussed. We'll see many reasons why. But it is discussed. There is a clause that says reward. If you fulfill, this will be the consequence. There is it written in the contract. And it's only physical. What could be a bigger admission in the Torah itself that there's no world after this? Rashi says clearly. That's what the attackers of Torah will say. The, the people who attack our belief and our wisdom, our Torah, they will come along and they'll say, if there was no reward mentioned, maybe it's debatable. But the Torah says openly, it says if you do this, this is what will happen. So it's purporting to tell you the consequence. And the consequence is a physical existence. That's nice. No one's complaining. I want to sit under my grapevine with the grapes and the peace and I'll be wonderful. Can you imagine? No one's complaining. But it's not spiritual. It's not transcendent. It's not eternal and cosmic. and It's not the world to come. It's a wonderful description of a messianic, beautiful age where there's going to be no war and all. Marvelous. But it's not the world to come. The world to come is being one with Hashem. You have to understand that. It's being one with Him. It's melting back into that oneness, paradoxically able to feel that you're part of that oneness. That's what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be that the neshama transcends the physical world and melts back into its point of origin so intensely that it becomes that. Can you imagine? That's what it becomes. And yet it's still differentiated enough to feel that it's not itself, but it's... It's so deep that the sources say that the only way you can begin to relate to it in a millionth of a millionth of a millionth of almost nothing is the intensity of a marriage that's conducted correctly. A marriage between a man and a woman that's done correctly where there's a total melting in of two people into one thing, which vastly transcends what either of them are. And paradoxically, when you lose yourself with utter giving and complete vulnerability into that 
concept of Jewish marriage that we call Kiddushin. Kiddushin in Hebrew means sanctity. That's what it means. That's why you can't marry a non-Jew. Nothing wrong with non-Jews. They can have a most fantastic relationship. You can't do Kiddushin. Kiddushin means that, that spiritual bond between those two fires that are Jewish neshamas. But when that happens, the paradox is that you enter a state where something transcends the individuals, and yet, paradoxically, the individuals discover more sharply who they are and what they are. And what do you do with that newfound independent discovery? You put it right back into that fire. You melt it back in. And it's a nuclear reaction. That's what it's supposed to be. And that kind of a relationship, correctly, that's a beginning of an understanding of what the of bonding with Hashem means. That's, that's, that's the beginning of a discussion of the reward. So why doesn't it say it? So in summary, we have a twofold problem. I hope we're all together. Yes, this is, we said we're studying fundamentals. This is fundamental. This is basic. We have a twofold problem. The Torah does not mention the reward of the next world, and it does purport to talk about reward. And those two problems accentuate each other, and it leaves us in an extremely difficult situation. Our belief is that the, the reward is an eternal, cosmic, ineffably great and infinite thing. And the Torah talks about the reward for service here, and then it talks about something very limited. That's our problem. Now, in answering this problem, we'll have to take a few steps back and we'll have to learn some, we'll have to learn some principles. For those of you who wish to prepare, the source here is in the Chukhoisai. On the verse itself, on, the, on these verses itself, um, you should look up in, in a Mikras Kedolis here, the, um, the edition that has all the, all the later commentaries. You look in the Kli Yakar, one of the very more recent um, Torah commentaries, very straightforward Hebrew. He brings here a, a most amazing, amazing thing to study just for, its, just for its textual lessons. He brings here a summary of a work by the Barbanel. The Barbanel, as I'm sure you know, was a great Spanish Torah authority in the days of the Rishonim, 700 years ago, 600 years ago. He was a great uh, leader of Spanish Jewry and of Spain, as it happens as well, it's in the non-Jewish Spanish world. And he was a... Um, he undertook to answer this question, and the Barbanel wrote an essay in which he goes through seven classic answers to this question. You know, in Torah, when we have seven answers to a question, especially this kind of question, we're never, never talking about divergent or <coughs> dissenting opinions. Each, each of these seven is the different facet of a beautifully polished jewel. These all complement each other. We're talking about seven. Each of these goes together, hand in hand, with the others. He wrote a, a detailed work collecting seven classic answers to this question of why the Torah does not mention the world to come, does talk about reward, but talks only about physical reward, and all the ramifications of that, of those questions. The Babanel wrote a, 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 master, a masterful analysis of this question and its answers, collecting and collating the answers of all the classic authorities. He brings more than one from the Rambam, he brings uh, from the Svorno, he brings from Ibn Ezra, he brings the great early authorities who each approach this issue and problem from a different angle, and he brings them. The Kli Yakar says that in order to make this readily understandable, I'm going to summarize them with an extreme effort of summarization. And for just, again, even, even for, the, for those who can't muster the essential interest in the subject itself, just the, the, to be able to, the privilege of witnessing the, the, the skill of being able to summarize this complexity into, into a few words. Each of these seven answers is condensed into four, five, or six lines virtually. It's an absolute, incredible, classic masterpiece of summarization, which is worth looking, studying just for that reason alone. And here you have a ready reference to seven 
amazing dimensions of insight into this particular area, each of which strengthens and bolsters and shines and polishes a different facet of this, of this issue. In fact, there are more answers than this. There are more answers than, than these seven, at least, uh, at least one or two more, one of which I would like to share with you when we, when we, if, we, if we merit Mr. Hashem to move through and study all seven. I will then try to share with you an eighth answer, which, like all examples of the number eight, transcends all the seven. These seven, despite their incredible depth and beauty, are not directly taken from the Kabbalistic world, from the deeper world. They're all taken from, of course, they're all taken from there, like all Torah is, but they filtered through and presented through the medium of a more explicit um, style, let's say, or vehicle. The answer which I'd like to share with you that goes beyond that is directly a, an answer taken from the, from the deeper wisdom, which is indescribably beautiful and breathtaking in its depth and clarity and simplicity. But in order to understand it, we'll have to move through the stages of this, of this discussion. Perhaps what we'll try and set ourselves for this evening is a few words of background and perhaps just an attempt to go through the first answer that's brought, that's brought as one of these seven just by way of introducing our subject and giving you what to study and revise and prepare, perhaps whet your appetite to start looking a bit beyond. You'll get a lot more out of these discussions if you come having looked through the text and, and prepared. <coughs> first of all, before we can begin an answer, let's begin an understanding of what we mean by the world to come. Very, very briefly, without, hopefully without unnecessary details at this point, an endless subject, obviously. <clears throat> when we talk about the world to come, <coughs> that term, that term, when we talk about Olam Abba, and all the terms that are, that are used in reference to that dimension, like Gan Eden, for example, a garden, what does a garden mean? Trees, trees and fruit, what does that mean? All these terms, you should know, are used in two senses in the text. They are used in a generic sense, and they're used specifically. They're used generally, which means, again, again, the world to come consists, life here has phases. And beyond life here, there are phases. If this is a lifetime, yes, this is the expanse of a lifetime. And let's call this, let's call it the 6,000 years of world history. Yes, we believe that the world was created 5,759 years ago. The Gemara says there are only 6,000 years. The world was created. This world, in this phase of its physical manifestation that we experience now, exists only for 6,000 years. So if you, if you plot it like this, let's say it began there, and we're moving through 6,000 years, and we now, if this is the end, we are very close, because if there's 6,000 years that take us here, and we're in 5,759 in proportion, we must be somewhere here. Right? The deeper sources say that we are... We are deep into the sixth day. You know that the 6,000 years parallel the six days of creation. I don't know if you're aware, there are Kabbalistic works that go, explicit works, that go through the hours of creation. You know that? There are works that go through each of the six days, and the Medrash tells us what happened at each hour of each day. You can correlate each hour of each day to events in history. You know that? In the sixth day, for example, the sixth day where we are now, if you divide the day into 24 hours, and you learn the Midrashim that say what happened on each of these hours, you can link human events in this and previous centuries. Specific events, incredible thing. Not going to go into it now, but it's something to research. We're now holding somewhere here 5,000-odd, 700 years, very close to the year 6,000. The sources say that the world at the point 6,000 will include the Messianic Age. In other words, somewhere in here will begin the Messianic Age, Yemesa Mashiach. 
The Messiah will arrive. A lot of detail about what he will be, look like, etc. A lot of details. We don't know a lot of details. We do. And that age will last until the year 6000. How long will it last? Depends when he comes. Depends when he comes. The one side of heaven says it could have been anywhere from the year 4000 on. The one says that the last 2000 are called Yemosa Mashiach. And anywhere in there he could have arrived. We haven't merited it yet. When he comes, then the Messianic age will begin and will last until the year 6000. What will happen during the Messianic age and what will happen beyond? During the Messianic age, we have many, many details and predictions, many prophetic statements. It's a physical physical existence with a higher spark of soul within it, but it can be described physically. The Gemara is a famous debate in the Talmud about whether the world will look natural like it does now or look utterly and completely different. The opinion of one group of sages in the Talmud is that the world will look nothing like it does now. The famous opinion of Shmuel in the Talmud is that it will look exactly like it does now, except for the political dispensation. The world will go exactly as it now, except for what's called Shibud Malchus. That means there will be no rule of political entities, meaning that there will be no wars. The complete political, if you want to call it that, dispensation of the entire world will be Torah. Nations living in harmony and peace. Many commentaries, Tosus himself, themselves there point out that it cannot literally be so because to talk about it being physical and natural as it is now, you have to understand that Certain things will be different. The temple will be standing, the Besamekdash. There's one opinion that it will be built in fire. But nevertheless, the world will look as it does now. The other opinion is that it will look utterly different. The Kabbalistic master, the Ari, in classic fashion, says they're both true. They're both true. During the Messianic age, the world will be exactly as it is now and utterly different. How's that possible? Think about it. How's it possible? It's based on a beautiful source. You know, the source says that in the Messianic age, the world will be filled with Dea. Da'a means knowledge of Hashem. Da'as in Hebrew means knowledge, but intimate inner knowledge. So many commentaries have pointed out, like water covers the oceans. What does that mean? But it has a very beautiful meaning. Water covers the oceans in a level, horizontal fashion. That means the surface of the water is all the same. But that which you cannot see, the depths are very different. Beautiful idea. The, the, the explicit level is all the same. But in each place, there's a different level of depth, and that's not manifest. Says the Ari, when the Mashiach arrives... What you will see of a transcendent world depends on your depth. If you're a superficial individual and you have not built in yourself the human and superhuman sensitivity to see that which transcends, if you haven't developed those eyes, then all you will see in the Messianic age is a beautiful physical world. Peaceful, beautiful, wonderful, all the things we talk about here that the prophets talk about, beautiful and wonderful, but you will not see that which transcends. But in proportion to your depth, that's how deep the ocean will go. The more knowledge you have of Hashem that you built here, because you cannot build it then. Free choice ends then. No opportunity is given after Mashiach comes. Now there's the too late then. Only what you prepare now. Those wellsprings or those sensitivities that you've opened up now while it's not obvious, when you've penetrated those barriers through your own effort, they become you. And when that advent arrives, so then according to your depth and preparation, to that extent you'll see what it is. And therefore they're both true. According to the superficial nature of your consciousness, that will be the superficial normal reality. According to the depth of your consciousness, that will be the manifestation of that which is utterly unlike anything seen before. But that's all the Messianic age. And there the Talmud, we have a lot of detail. The dead will be revived. Literally and technically, physically, a lot of description about which people will stand up. Not all of us. Not all of us. You want to know the secret of whom? Remind me, we'll talk about that sometime. But... (laughs) Not everyone, but 
Although everyone has a share in what's beyond, but not everyone has a share in this way, it'll be clear. Every Jew, actually every human being, this isn't only Jewish, but without getting into details, has a share in what comes here, which we call the world to come. But what comes here, this unique and remarkable transitional phase called the Messianic Age, you need a, a special merit. You need special qualifications to be put back into your physical vessel here. The Gemara says you need to be connected to Torah. You have some connection with Torah. Either you've learned it intensely, you have a connection to personal learning, or you paid money for people to learn Torah. You paid money, even if you never learned yourself. And you paid people who couldn't have learned otherwise, according to many opinions. Because your money is you. Your money is you. You spent your life earning that, if you earned it honestly. You spent time. Time is your life. You translated those weeks and months and years into this amount of money. So what you translate the money into, again, is a translation of your life. It's not sentiment. You spent a year earning money. So you, you gave away a year of your life for that value. That is what your year of life is. Especially if you spent it doing something worthless. If you spent it doing something worthwhile and earning, so you have the benefit. But if you spent it doing nothing beneficial to the world. So you gave away a year of your life and it's now valued at what you earn. This is it. So if you take that value and you put it into something that's transcendent and cosmic, it's an ultimate translation of that year of your life. And if you pay it away for that, you earn it. It's another discussion. But yeah, only people who are related to Torah, they cause Torah to be in the world one way or another. Torah is the energy that resurrects the dead. It is the channel of energy that pours life back into those bodies. And that's what it will be. And there are many other things that Gemara talks about, whether the dead will stand up with their, with their clothes on or not. The Gemara says that they will stand up with all their injuries that they died with. If people, if people any, any physical ailment or injury the dead died with, they will stand up with and then be cured and healed. Many, many descriptions we have of all these phases. But that's called the Messianic Age. Again, there's a discussion whether it will take 40 years for the dead to be revived gradually, or at the end they'll all be. A long, long description, many descriptions of the pre-Messianic phase when the Mashiach arrives and he's challenged by the Western nations. There the sources all say the Ramban has two long pages that were censored by the Christian censor that have been put back lately. In the new editions, you can see them, two long pages about what the war will look like and how all the Western nations will get together and the Arabs will be chosen to be the point of the spear in collusion and, and, and team with the rest of the Western nations. Very great detail based on Torah sources. The Gon of Vilna says that a war will ensue. The Gon says that describes the war. The Gon describes the Tanakh describes the war. It's a frightening thing. The Gon of Vilna who died in 1797. 1797, the Gon wrote that the war will take 12 minutes. He wrote that then. That might, if anything looked like a misprint, it must have been that. A 12-minute war. And the Tanakh says that a third of the world will be killed. A third of the world population will die. A third will be injured and a third will survive. There's descriptions in Tanakh of the, of the piling up of the bodies and it takes seven months to clear from Israel. Sanhedrin talks about how the nations will march against Israel, what they'll bring with them. It says they'll bring their women and their wealth, not just their weapons. That's for another occasion. But that is the pre-Messianic build-up. Of course, it doesn't have to, let's just, let's just be clear, it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. That's if we don't come right. That's if we don't come right. That's if we continue being what they are out there. If we continue being them, then we'll have to be pushed back into this. If we come right and do it ourselves, it's not going to be like that. It's up to you and me. Let's be clear. The Gemara is absolutely clear. Let's make that absolutely clear. The Gemara says that the last generation of the world's history will be totally meritorious or totally deficient. There will be total clarification. When the Mashiach arrives, it will come to a generation of Jews. He will come to a generation of Jews who are totally righteous and merit him or totally worthless, unworthy. The Gemara shows that it cannot be so because it's, 
There's a guarantee that we'll do tshuva, which means everybody will come to their senses and do what they have to be. And the Gemara says, it depends how. Either we come to our senses and do it right and it happens right, or the, the torment and abject terror of the threat that hangs over us then, completely unprecedented in history. Purim, where every Jew is destined earmarked for destruction on one day, was nothing compared to what we'll experience. We'll be so fearsome that every Jew on earth will do tshuva instantly and thereby become... Well, that's not going to be the pleasant way. The Gemara says, let it come, but let me not see it. <coughs> but that's leading up to the Messianic Age. The phase that will then ensue is this phase here, in which all these... We have a lot more sources, but then there will be a thousand years that transcend all of this, by all accounts. Now, what I'm trying to put across is that when we use the terms the Messianic Age, the world to come, Gun Aiden, etc., the... The next world, sometimes those words are used to mean only this, sometimes they used to mean only this, sometimes they used to mean only from here in, sometimes they used to mean only the 10,000 years, set of years, sometimes they used to mean all of it. You have to be very careful when dealing with texts. What is the word being used specifically and technically, or is it being used in a generic sense? But what we need to know is that this is the spectrum. First 6,000 years of history, a messianic age of possible variable length, a thousand years during which the Gemara says the Olam Choruv, which it returns to a primordial state, and again, I'm not going to go now into descriptions of it, Dari says that there will be then an eight thousand years, the seventh of course corresponds to Shabbos. Six thousand years of work, like six days, and then a thousand years of Shabbos. Then there will be an eight thousand years and a ninth and a tenth, according to Dari, according to, the, according to his tradition, there will be only ten thousand years, and the tenth will be a spiraling back to the point of origin, and again, there's deep discussion and Description of this in the Kabbalistic sources, all using borrowed and transmitted language. There are other opinions, and I'm not going to go into now an attempt to resolve them. Rabbeinu Bechai, for example, holds that the 7,000 years that we live through now are only one cycle of many cycles. Again, without detail, Rabbeinu Bechai says that we're now going through a 7,000-year cycle, which is one of 49,000 7,000-year cycles, and there are 49,000 of those. He bases it all in Psukim. And in fact, students of the Ramban and others have gone through that calculation, and you can find it printed in English today. It's uh, recently published in a, one of the original sources translated. You can, uh, you can read today in which the calculation is brought and all the, all the verses and so forth. In fact, interestingly, for those who have an interest in these things, although it's utterly without any... Just allow myself to mention it, that if you go through that calculation of the 49,000-year jubilee cycles that he calculates, the total number of all the cycles until the final stage adds up to about 15 billion. Very close to what the modern f theory of physics describes from their account of the point of origin of the universe. Remarkable thing, and there are many sources later that have linked the two, but that's neither here nor there, I can assure you. The point is that... Um, he holds that we are now in... And there are descriptions about what these cycles mean. There are cycles of sequential elevation. There are sources that say that in the previous cycle of 7,000 years, which was before this cycle, the souls that existed then, the souls that existed then, which are now our souls, were relative then to us now as fish are to humans. That's the distinction in levels. And the souls that exist now in this phase will be only as fish compared to humans in the transition to the next phase of elevation. So there are many different opinions, they all have meaning, this is not the time to go into them. But the accepted, the more accepted way, a model, perhaps think about these things, is a 10,000 year phase, 
And what we're talking about tonight, when we talk about the world to come, we're talking about that. We're not talking about the Messianic age. We're not talking about the 7,000 7, years of Shabbos, although those are all wonderful discussions. Perhaps sometime in the future we'll merit to discuss them. We're talking about the final, final, final. When it's all done, that's what we're talking about, which is a complete return to the bond of oneness that the soul enjoyed with Hashem before it was projected down into a body. That's not mentioned in the Torah. Let's spend a few minutes and look at one answer. Can we do that? Do you have the energy or do you wish to leave it at this point? Yes, are you too hot? Do you have energy? Yes. <laughs> Questions me. That's the question. That's the question. Let's look just for a few minutes. Let's look for a few minutes at the first answer that is brought here, which he brings in the name of the Rambam. Please see the text yourself. Uh, he brings a summary of it here, and it comes from Hilkos Chuba in the ninth chapter. That whole section of Hilkos Chuba, which we learn here on Sunday mornings, those who, those who meet, we have been going through those in detail inside in the text. You can find now a new publication that brings all ten of those chapters in English with notes. There's no excuse for not being able to go into it. Facing Hebrew and English text, you can study it yourself. There the Rambam says the following thing. Stay with me carefully, please. The first answer is, the reason that the Torah doesn't speak about the world after this is because the Torah here is not speaking about reward at all. This has got nothing to do with reward. The Torah does not mention reward. This is not that the Torah here mentions reward and mentions only the superficial and physical reward. The Rambam says the Torah does not mention reward at all. If you keep my statutes and do my mitzvahs, then what will happen is this thing is not reward. It's got nothing to do with reward. The contract does not contain any clause dealing with what you will be paid. What is this? explains as follows. Let me try and put it into a modern terminology or analogy. When you work for someone, when you work for someone, there are two kinds of payment. Let's concentrate together. Try and see it on its deeper plane at the same time. When you work for someone, there are two kinds of payment that you receive. There's salary and there's expenses. This is only expenses. When you finish the month, you get a salary. But in going through the course of the month, they provide you with certain things. What are those things? They're what you need to get the job done. That's all these things are. Again. <coughs> Yeah, think with me carefully here. You see, this will only answer half the problem, won't it? This will only answer, yes, why these things are stated and why they are finite and physical. These are only the expenses that you get paid out here so you can do the job, that's all it is. But we'll still be left with the question, then why doesn't the Torah mention reward at all? Any reward at all? That we haven't answered. Okay, are we clear? We're dealing with half the problem. Let's think logically here. We're dealing with half the problem. First half of the problem, what is the meaning of this? Says the Rambam, expenses, that's all. Second half, so where's the where's reward? Altogether, never mind this world, or any reward, altogether, not mentioned. Why? Well, we'll have to deal with that. First problem, one at a time. Expenses. Expenses means that what the Torah is saying here is if you keep my mitzvahs and you serve me, you do what you should be, I'll give you what you need to keep doing it. What kind of employer wouldn't do that? What kind of employer? When you employ, you employ someone to go traveling and make sales for you, you give him whatever he needs. And you lavish, as lavish as possible. Why not? 
You give him what he needs to do the job. If he needs this kind of a vehicle and needs that kind of expense account and this kind of food and this kind of inter- whatever he needs. He's doing the job. You promote. The Torah is saying here, if you, if you do what you should, you keep my laws and mitzvahs and you act correctly and you build the world as you're supposed to, I'll give you what you need to keep doing it. If you defect and default, I'll withhold the expenses. When the employee starts using the money of expenses to live it up for himself and he doesn't bring home deals, you know what they do? Cut the expenses. That's what they do. But if he brings home deals, and if he brings home bigger deals, they need more expenses, they give him more expenses. What's the problem? The Torah is telling you openly and committing itself. By the way, the sources say here that Hashem commits himself. Try it. You try it. In the phases of human history, of Jewish history, when we did it, that's what happened. And then when we slid away and defected, that's when it broke down. This is national, by the way, not personal. And we have to discuss that later. This is national for us as a nation. This is not personal. It's another, comes up later in one of the, one of the deep answers. That's the concept. The Torah is here telling you, for rewards, not discussed. You do, you do correctly what you have to. This is the kind of world you're living. I want to make it difficult for you. Make it difficult. I'm going to give you what you need. Now, this concept raises a number of fascinating, without going to keep you too late, this concept raises a number of fascinating spin-offs and consequences. One is that the expenses are given in proportion to the value of the deals that you bring home. That's a chilling and frightening thought. That means, you want to live lavishly? You want to live lavishly here? You want to earn some of this now? Yeah, expenses, that means you want to derive? Are you bringing home any deals? There's a contract here. The contract says you want, forget reward, salary, we'll talk about that later. Let's forget, but you want to live well, you want, which hotels do you want to stay at when you entertain the client? And which meal do you want to eat? And what wine do you want to drink with the clients? What deals, what deals are you bringing home? You bring home big deals, you have big expenses. You want to live big expenses, bring home small deals? You want to do very few of these things called mitzvahs and cooking? You want to live it up lavishly? Very risky. It's very risky. The Chavetz Chaim said that he lived simply because he couldn't afford... Chavetz Chaim said that he lived very simply because he couldn't take the risk of living lavishly and not justifying his existence. The Chavetz Chaim didn't have backs to his chairs, you know that? He lived in a house. I, I, I know people. I personally know and knew people who knew him personally. Rav Sivre Wasserman told me that in his home there was a bench and not chairs. Do you know he didn't own a shas? He didn't have a set of the Gemaras in his house. Why? Because you have to buy that. And to buy that you could spend time to earn the money. You want to spend the time learning. He didn't need a shas. He knew it by heart. That's another problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, backs to his chairs. You know there was a businessman from Vienna. You know Eastern Europe was poverty stricken. Western Europe was a little better. There was some... A businessman from Vienna once went for a broker to Chavetz Chaim. He walked into this leader of world jury. I don't know, Chaim was 85, 90. I don't know how old he was at the time. He's a saintly individual, completely transcendent. Rav Wasserman told me that you ever saw the Chavetz Chaim, you were never the same again. Rav Wasserman told me that, not, not nobody. I can tell you that if you saw Rav Wasserman, you're never the same again. I saw that with my eyes, and he told me that about the Chavetz Chaim. <coughs> the businessman walked in, and he saw this utter poverty. He saw the Chavetz Chaim living in a place where... And backs to his chest, the leader of world jury. He said, Rabbi, where's your possessions? Where's your wealth? The Chavetz Chaim said to him, where are yours? He said, Rabbi, I'm only passing through. You should see where I am. Chavetz Chaim said, I'm also only passing through. <laughs> Why did he live that way? Because he said he couldn't take the risk 
of living more lavishly, because if you live more lavishly, you've got to bring home big deals. You can't claim expenses and then you're not... You get judged. Your, your expenses, the amount you're allowed to live, you have to pay for everything. You have to pay for everything. The world runs on a system called DIN. There's no expenses without bringing home the deals. All has to be paid for, one way or another. You've got no free handouts here. There's a contract here. It's all obligation. Bring home big deals. You get what you need. You take things that you don't deserve and you don't do what you should be doing. You, you're running up an, an, an account that you have to, a frightening account. The Chavetz Chaim used to tell a story just to illustrate it. He tell a story about a Russian military regiment. It's just a beautiful analogy just to bring a point home. He did a Russian military battalion and they were putting on a, a parade for the Tsar. They were all drawn up on parade in the hot sun and the Tsar was late. So early in the morning, the soldiers are all standing on parade, a whole battalion. The Tsar is late. So the officers are getting uh, a little impatient and decide who knows when the Tsar is coming. So they leave the men standing on parade and they go back to the officers' mess. So drinking vodka and eating caviar. While they're busy living it up, back in the officers' mess, the Tsar arrives. He finds a whole battalion of men standing on parades, no officers around. So the Tsar says, anybody here who can drill these men? So a young Jewish boy steps forward. And he says, I think I can manage. So he runs the parade. He runs the whole parade, gives the orders, soldiers drill. Beautiful parade. While this is going on, the officers run out very, very shamefaced. Stand there in terrible shame with their caviar and their vodka. <laughs> when the head of the parade, the Tsar turns to the officer and he says, in command, he says to him, how much do you cost me a day? He says, 10 rubles. How much does this boy cost me a day? He says, 2 kopecks. He says to the officer, you're not worth it. And the Chavaz Chaim says, that's how Hashem looks at you. You want backs to your chairs, you have to use the chairs. Let's deal briefly only with the second part of the question, and we'll close with that. The second part of the question is, if the concept here is only expenses, and the Jewish people are guaranteed that we'll be given what we need if we do what we have to do, and that's all that's being discussed here, then we amplify the other question. So then why doesn't the Torah talk about reward? Why doesn't it talk about it at all? The Rambam says a most beautiful and, and unforgettable idea. This has a, again, it's an effort to, to try and find the right words. Let's do our best together. There's a, there's a level of understanding here, and there's a level beneath that as well. Let's try, and, let's try for both in the next few minutes. The Ramam says this, the reason the Torah doesn't mention the reward is because you shouldn't be serving for the reward if the contract includes a clause of reward then your motivation in this deal is not love and selfless desire to do that which you should be doing for the right reason it's a desire for the reward again, if the contract ends in salary, never mind expenses let's forget that for now, the contract ends with salary what's it saying? You do this for that. In fact, let's, the deeper level is just, again, attempt to express it. The simple level is, if the Torah would mention reward, then the, you, you might be doing your service, performing the mitzvahs, observing the mitzvahs, doing the chukim, etc. You might be doing them for the reward, and that's not what you should be doing. But there's a deeper level. Stay with me carefully. If the Torah mentioned the reward, what did we say that all of Torah is? Obligation. If the Torah mentioned the reward, it would be an obligation to serve for the reward. 
Not just that you might be. You'd be obliged to. And that's supposed to be your relationship with Hashem. Can you see that? If Hashem wrote the reward in the Torah, you do this, you live with me. You'll be me. You'll be part of me. The Gemara says you'll be called by Hashem's name. You know that? Gemara Baba Basha says, Asidim tzadikim likare al The righteous individuals will be called by Hashem's name. You will be called. The, the, one of the late great commentaries says, Yud that name. You'll be called His name. You be that. If I write that in the Torah, then you'll be serving for that. And that won't be service. Put more... But more deeply. But if I write that, and since all of my Torah is what you're obliged to do, it means I'm commanding you to serve for the reward. And that's exactly what I don't want. I want you to work for me because you love me. Not because you... Give you an analogy. You see... How come our oral law teaches us about the reward? One second, what's going on? You're not supposed to know about it, so you serve selflessly? Then why does the oral law talk about it? You see the problem? But the answer is this. The contract is the technical obligation. The oral law is what you should know. Example. Someone employs you and he says, Look, I'm not going to write any salary here. I don't want to commit myself in writing. To, I, I, want you to serve, I want you to relate to me the way you should. I guarantee you it'll be okay. And this is someone you can trust. <coughs> again, again. There's no problem knowing that there will be a reward. But that should not be why you're doing it. Let me give you an analogy. Marriage. Why do you live and manifest love for this person to whom you married? Why are you doing it? Because it will be good for you? Because it will be... Do you know how sweet it is to relate to somebody correctly in marriage, which means giving only? Do you know how good that is for you? Do you know there's no better recipe for personal happiness in marriage, there's a general rule in life, but let's just focus here on marriage. There's no recipe for more intense personal happiness than giving the other person happiness. That's the most, the most selfish way you can live in marriage, is to make sure you don't think about yourself, you only think about her. If you only think about her making her happy, there's no more blissful... Do you know what a woman does when you, make, when you treat her correctly? She glows. She glows like a neon light, and she makes you... You name it, whatever you want. It works the other way too. But men aren't as reliable. That's another problem. <laughs> but the question is this. Why are you doing it? Why are you doing it? If you deal correctly with that person because you want her to be nice to you, that's love. You're the chutzpah to call that love in a relationship. No. You treat her correctly because that's love. Because she deserves it. And because that's what a relationship is. Ah, you know it will be sweet for you? Fine, that's no problem. Does she mind that you know that? Of course not. You can know it. But the question is, where's your heart? Where's your motivation? She doesn't mind your knowing it. On the contrary, she wants that. Each wants the other one's happiness. But they don't. There's a very, very big difference if I deal correctly with you so that I will be happy. I don't care about you. I'm, doing it, I'm only doing what's right by you so you do by me what I need. That is mercenary. That's not love. But if I do for you what I should be doing for you, and it so happens, and I know it will be sweet for me, but that's not why. That's beautiful. If the Torah would say you serve for the reward, that would be mercenary. Where's the love? So the Torah says, I'm not, Hashem says, I'm not writing in the contract. I want you to do it because we love each other. Let's build a love together. That's why you do it for me. Between the lines and within the oral law from Jewish history and experience, you should know it will be the sweetest thing for you. 
And that's why the Torah mentions only physical consequence because it's not reward. It is only expenses. And that's why the Torah doesn't mention any reward. Not here in the written law. Doesn't mention re- reward. Not here and not in the next world. Why? As it's put in the Rambam over there and he brings sources from other places. The concept is you serve Hashem because that is the way you should be living. That's the essence of, it, of your life and that is who you are and that is what you are. And, and the goodness will come. That's not, don't do it because of it, do it because it's right. The consequence is it will be there anyway. No problem knowing it and we've handed it down in our oral tradition since we began, but we don't write it in the contract just like you wouldn't write it in a marriage contract. You write a marriage contract that says I will do everything that you need and I will do it unconditionally and I'll build the love and that's what I will. You write in the marriage contract, yeah, I'm doing this, this is, this is hmm, the salary, you have to be nice to me, you write that bottom of the contract. That's why, that's the... This should be obvious and it should be a, a first principle. This is the first of seven approaches to this deep and wonderful question, <clears throat> all of which deal with this issue from a, from a certain number of facets. Mithashem will study these together, and then hopefully if we've assimilated together these ideas, we'll be able to go beyond and look at that which transcends all of these. <clears throat>